0: Welcome to Oncology Practice Update, this is medical oncologist Dr. Neil Love. Our focus in this program is management of side effects and toxicity of systemic therapy of cancer and for this edition, we specifically focus on the increasingly complex yet hopeful area of multiple myeloma and breast cancer, perhaps the most complicated systemic therapy algorithm in clinical oncology practice. To begin, Dr. Robert Orlowski illustrates some of the current challenges in management of myeloma by presenting a patient from his practice. This first patient that I thought
1: was interesting from the perspective of looking at the toxicities of therapy was a gentleman who now is 64 years old and had initially been diagnosed with an IgG kappa multiple myeloma in early 2005. At that time, by his community oncologist, he was started on what was then the standard of care, which is thalamid and decadron, and that resulted in a good response, not a complete response, but unfortunately, it was complicated by the development of peripheral neuropathy, which ultimately worsened to the point that the neuropathy caused discontinuation, And the neuropathy presented in this patient initially as numbness and tingling, but later on did progress to some painful symptoms as well. When the thalamid and decadron were discontinued, eventually the disease progressed. And at that point, he was converted to therapy with revlimid and decadron. And again, that resulted in an excellent initial response but later, unfortunately, disease progressed again. And interestingly, generally, we think of lenalidomide as a drug that does not cause a lot of neuropathy, and fortunately, that's true. But this patient, after being on lenalidomide and dexamethasone for about 9 to 12 months, did notice some reappearance, of a similar neuropathy that he had had while on thalamid, which for a while had actually disappeared. that point, he was referred to MD Anderson for some further evaluation with concern because of the neuropathy as well as progression on both of the two available immunomodulatory drugs. So, we did an evaluation on him. And despite the presence of his neuropathy, because of the activity of bortezomib in the relapsed and refractory setting, we considered that this patient was still a potential candidate
0: for proteasome inhibitor therapy. Can you review when you first saw him on that referral, what his sort of disease state was at that point in terms of both the magnitude of it and his symptomatology? Actually, I have a graph
1: of the monoclonal protein values, and when he first was referred to Anderson, he had a monoclonal protein level of 1.5, and actually because that was still relatively low and he had developed these neuropathic symptoms while on lenalidomide, we thought that perhaps a period of watchful waiting to allow for some recovery from the neuropathy would be reasonable, which would perhaps have led to the improvement of the neuropathy sufficiently that coming in with bortezomib after that would have been a little bit safer.
0: Now, was transplant an issue or consideration with him? Yeah, definitely.
1: What we were hoping to do was to try to put him on a bortezomib-containing regimen, get a nice response, and then move him on to stem cell mobilization, eventually high-dose therapy and transplant. What would his marrow look like, and how about his bones? Well, his marrow at that time, which was with his first presentation, showed a relatively modest involvement with about 20% plasma cells. And although he did not have large lytic lesions, there were small areas of lucencies in both femurs and in the humeri as well. And had he been treated with bisphosphonates? He had been receiving bisphosphonates, yes, and
0: tolerating them well. Which one did he get? He was getting zoledronic acid. Before we go on, just to backtrack a little bit until you get farther into the neuropathy thing, just a couple other points. In general, how do you approach the issue of duration of bisphosphonate therapy in these patients?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. And I think that the current recommendations, both from The Mayo Clinic folks and from the American Society of Clinical Oncology suggest that bisphosphonates should be given about every three to four weeks for a duration of up to two years, and treatment can be discontinued at that time, especially if the disease is under good control. If there is later progression, especially with bony disease, then the guidelines recommend continuing and again restarting bisphosphonate therapy. There are still some question marks, though, because the bisphosphonates have a very long half-life, and there are studies looking at whether less frequent dosing, especially after an initial one-year
0: or 18-month period, may be appropriate. I'm kind of curious in terms of the agent denosumab, the rank ligand inhibitor that we've seen a lot of encouraging data come out in. In general, what are your thoughts about what you've seen there? And if it were available, how do you think you would integrate it, if at all, into your practice in terms of myeloma? Of course, there has been increasing concern
1: about the use of bisphosphonates, in part because they are associated with this entity known as osteonecrosis of the jaw, Fortunately, that happens in a low percentage of patients, but when it does occur, it can be a management difficulty, and also some patients on bisphosphonates can develop renal insufficiency, and although in some of them, that's associated probably with progression of their underlying myeloma, there are some cases where that is not true, and it does seem that there may be a direct effect of bisphosphonates. So those findings in part support possibly looking at less frequent dosing schedules. And as you point out, there are these rank ligand antibodies that are being looked at. And one should say there are other monoclonal antibodies in development that are looking at targeting bone. There's one antibody against DKK1 and several of these antibodies are in trials. The benefits are that these are much more targeted, of course, than regular drugs like bisphosphonates, and the hope is that, at least initially, they will add to the benefit of bisphosphonates, and ultimately, it may be that they will be able to replace them altogether, although we're not yet at that point.
0: I guess another issue is the fact that it's subcutaneous administration as opposed to IV with bisphosphonates. Any advantage there, or is that really not a big deal?
1: Well, I think there's always a benefit when you don't need to poke an IV into a patient's arm from the standpoint of convenience, and there is a slight decreased risk of infectious complications and possibly thromboembolic complications. It still would be something that probably would not reduce visits to the physician's office because I would still probably normally see patients once per month to follow their blood counts and look at their myeloma protein levels. But certainly, again, having a benefit in terms
0: of not sticking an IV in In terms of what you've seen, I don't know if you've seen any of the denosumab data, at least what I've seen in breast cancer, metastatic breast cancer, suggests maybe it's better, you know, fewer skeletal events than zolindronate or zoledronic acid. What about myeloma?
1: Well, I think the data in myeloma are not quite as mature yet as they are in breast cancer. But certainly, I think there is similar reason for encouragement because The data do suggest that they will add on to the benefit of bisphosphonates. And then I think in the future, the question will be whether we can do without the bisphosphonates altogether.
0: Now, what are you doing right now? Now, this man seemed like he was doing pretty well from the point of view of his bones, didn't have any significant problems with his olandronic acid. What are you doing right now if you have a patient with myeloma who's on zoledronic acid and in spite of that develops a skeletal event, you know, continued pain or a fracture, et cetera Do you keep the bisphosphonate going? It's a very good question. Oftentimes what
1: will happen is one is faced with that problem earlier in the disease course where someone will present with recently diagnosed myeloma and bone pain and then develop a fracture. In those cases, most people in the field would probably recommend continuing their bisphosphonate with the thought that perhaps the fracture occurred as a result of bone damage that was done prior to the diagnosis and therefore continuing on therapy would be something that would still be of benefit in terms of reducing the risk of fractures elsewhere. I think in a patient who's already been on bisphosphonates for an extended period of time, such as two years, if there is a new fracture, then that certainly suggests that you need to, of course, be more aggressive with their anti-myeloma therapy, such as trying to do radiation therapy to the involved area.
0: Now, you mentioned that this patient had been on two IMIDs, thalidomide and then lenalidomide. Can you talk a little bit about some of the supportive care issues, side effects issues that you consider with both of those agents?
1: Yeah, great question. The thalidomide and dexamethasone combination is one that does increase the risk of thromboembolic complications. We know now from a number of studies that the same is true with lenalidomide and dexamethasone. And if you add other drugs such as anthracyclines, for example, the risk is increased even further. There's actually a nice paper that was published about a year and a half ago, which was a consensus statement of the International Myeloma Working Group about the prophylaxis against thromboembolic complications. Antonio Palumbo was the first author. And basically what it allows folks to do There's a nice table in that paper, it's table four, which allows you to look at the various risk factors that increase the chances that patients will have a thromboembolic complication. And then depending on the number of risk factors, it may be appropriate if they're low risk to use only something like low-dose aspirin, whereas if they're at intermediate to high risk, then you would want to be more aggressive and use either low-molecular-weight heparin or full-dose Coumadin. And some of the factors that are involved include the use of IMIDs in combination with steroids, especially if this is high-dose, pulse-dose steroid, like in the older schedule, 40 milligrams days 1 through 4, 9 through 12, and 17 through 20. Also, patients who are newly diagnosed are at higher risk of thromboembolic complications than in the relapsed refractory setting because usually in the newly diagnosed scenario, they have a higher disease burden. Patients who have indwelling catheters, patients who may have a personal or family history of thromboembolic events, and also patients who are immobile or at least less mobile than normal, maybe because of bony pain, All of those are risk factors to consider. And again, depending on the number of risk factors, one may use either aspirin or low molecular weight heparin or full dose warfarin.
0: What about age alone, you know, 80-year-old patient without any increased risk factors that you mentioned, but just being 80 years old, is that enough for you to be more aggressive about antithrombosis?
1: I have a tendency to try to look at the physiologic age of the patient. So if you have a 55-year-old who unfortunately has terrible bone disease and is not very mobile, their risk is going to be substantially higher in all likelihood than an 80-year-old patient who is robust and moving
0: around well. One more issue about the IMIDS, and actually specifically lenalidomide, which is the issue of using, we're hearing more excitement about the triple and the quadruple regimens that include lenalidomide as well as bortezomib. What about the issue of using lenalidomide in a patient with renal compromise? As you know, lenalidomide is about two-thirds excreted
1: through the urinary route, and so in patients who do have renal insufficiency, there is a tendency for patients to have an accumulation of metabolites, and that can result in greater levels of cytopenias, especially neutropenia and thrombocytopenia. And in the Phase three studies that were done in the relapsed refractory setting, one in North America and one in Europe, there was an increased risk of infectious complications as a result. There are some guidelines based on pharmacokinetic studies that do provide some information about how to adjust dosing In patients with renal insufficiency, and there are ongoing studies looking at defining the dose more directly in phase one trials that are specifically targeting patients with renal insufficiency. I will often use a dose of around 15 milligrams given every other day, depending on the extent of renal insufficiency. I found that dose both alone and in combination with other drugs, including bortezomib and even in combination with alkylating agents like cyclophosphamide to be fairly well tolerated and not cause excess cytopenias. Although, again, one has to modulate that depending on the extent of the renal insufficiency. And the clearance is probably the best way to look at it because a creatinine of 2.0 in a 50-year-old male who's got lots of muscle mass versus a creatinine of 2.0 in a 90-year-old lady who's got less muscle mass is a completely different level of renal insufficiency.
0: Does it matter from your point of view whether you're thinking this is probably related to the disease or from a predisposing factor? Well, it's a good question.
1: Actually, parenthetically, not that this is what you asked, but the international staging system stage which is usually independent of renal function, I think the one place I would be concerned in applying that is in patients who have pre-existing renal insufficiency. For example, if you have somebody who, because of longstanding hypertension and diabetes, has been on hemodialysis for 15 years and all of a sudden develops multiple myeloma, The chances are that they will fall out into stage 3 of the ISS because their beta 2 is going to be high. But my suspicion is that in those patients, they probably are not adequately staged by the degree of renal insufficiency leading to the beta 2. For patients from a therapeutic perspective, though, it doesn't really matter whether the renal insufficiency is due to the disease or whether it's due to other factors, because you still have to adjust the dose of lenalidomide, no matter what the cause of the renal insufficiency. So let's go on with what happened with this patient. Well, we were, of course, concerned about this patient, given that he had progressed on thalamid and also on lenalidomide previously, and with his neuropathy, some patients who go on bortezomib who have a baseline neuropathy may have a worsening of their neuropathy. What we did, as I mentioned earlier, was that we did follow him with a watchful waiting approach for about three to four months to allow him more time away from his immunomodulatory drugs, And his neuropathy did improve down to about the grade one level. And then there is now especially, and then as well, there were data looking at the use of bortezomib, especially in combination in a once a week schedule. In particular, there was a study I would refer folks to presented at the recent American Society of Hematology meeting by Antonio Palumbo where they took newly diagnosed patients and treated them with a four-drug combination of bortezomib, melphalan, prednisone, and thalidomide. And some of those patients got the twice-a-week bortezomib schedule, and others got a -a once-a-week bortezomib schedule. The only disclaimer is that that study was not a randomized trial, But nonetheless, what it showed was that patients getting the once-a-week bortezomib schedule had a much lower rate of neuropathy and the outcomes, at least in terms of response rate and what durability we do have, that's the second disclaimer. The follow-up is still short, but the efficacy seemed to be comparable. If possible, I would still probably advocate going forward with a a twice-a-week bortezomib schedule because that is where most of the robust data currently are. But in selected patients like this one who has neuropathy at baseline, I will often try a a once-a-week schedule. And in fact, on this patient, what we did is that we used bortezomib once a week with cyclophosphamide given orally and also dexamethasone and that resulted in a very nice reduction in the monoclonal protein, and the patient did not have a worsening of his neuropathy.
0: You know, I was really impressed with that also. I think the first time I saw that was at ASCO last year. But then one investigator brought up an issue that I hadn't heard before, which is the question of the total dose of bortezomib in the weekly versus the biweekly. And that maybe it wasn't so much the schedule, but more the total amount of drug they were receiving. Well, it's a good point, because interestingly enough, in that trial that I referred to,
1: when the investigators looked at the total amount of bortezomib that was delivered, it actually was roughly comparable between the folks who got twice-a-week therapy versus those who got once-a-week therapy suggesting that the people who got once-a-week therapy were tolerating it so much better
0: that they were able to receive it for a longer period of time. You know, your thought about, well, we have more of the data with the twice-a-week. Do you think most people have this kind of positioning that when they can, they're going to use twice a week? And what about the ongoing clinical trials? Are they kind of reconsidering the schedule also, bortezomib?
1: Well, I think that what you do in a clinical trial and what you do in everyday practice is very different because the types of patients that go on to trials typically are folks that are a little bit more robust than the people that we see in our offices who can't go on a study. I like to try to go with the preponderance of the data, and until there is a study that shows definitively in a randomized phase three fashion that the once a week schedule is as good as the twice a week schedule, I still believe that you would have probably a better complete response rate and I would suspect a better response durability with the twice a week schedule. But there are patients in whom you may have to have consideration either for should I not give this patient any proteasome inhibitor or might I try a regimen that is less neurotoxic like a -a once-a-week schedule. And in a patient like that, I think that proteasome inhibitors are probably one of the best classes of drugs that we have against myeloma. And I would much rather take a patient like that and give them a -a once-a-week bortezomib regimen, especially in combination, than not to give them a proteasome inhibitor at all. What's this patient's current situation? Well, interestingly, I mentioned that the patient had a very good response to the bortezomib cyclophosphamide and dexamethasone to the point that he achieved a near complete remission with just a little bit of residual immunofixation positive protein. At that point, we referred him on to our stem cell transplant colleagues for an evaluation. And interestingly, on the subject of neuropathy, we have a trial open right now, which is being headed by Michael Wong here at MD Anderson, looking at the potential benefits of acupuncture as a way to treat neuropathy. This patient was very interested in that and enrolled And the regimen of acupuncture that he received was quite successful in improving his level of neuropathy even further than had been the case compared to baseline. Right now, we're continuing that study and also we're looking at incorporating acupuncture into the treatment regimen itself. The first round was looking at patients that were off of therapy because we were a little bit concerned that if someone were to develop neuropathy due to the drug therapy itself, but the acupuncture would have made it better, that the end result would have been no change in the baseline, and we could have possibly missed an active intervention. Right now, it does look very much like most of the patients have benefited, and so we have enough data to think about trying to incorporate it into part of the regimen. Now, this is a controlled trial? Well, right now, it's a single-arm study looking at both the feasibility of delivering acupuncture in patients who have been on previously neurotoxic therapy and are currently off of treatment. It was not a double-blind placebo or a controlled trial because feasibility was the main question and also to look at efficacy
0: But moving forward, we would have to do it in a randomized fashion to validate the approach. So this man, by the time he started the bortezomib-containing regimen, did he still have some residual neuropathy? He had a little bit of residual grade
1: one neuropathy. Interestingly, on the once-a-week schedule, he did not have any worsening of the neuropathy. I did omit to mention that he felt that while he was on the waiting period being evaluated for whether he could or could not go on to transplant, he didn't feel comfortable being off of therapy and wanted to be on a low dose of lenalidomide as a maintenance And unfortunately, the lenalidomide did not benefit him in terms of the disease. And with re-exposure, he did have more neuropathy develop, at which point we discontinued that and then put him on to the acupuncture intervention.
0: Now, was this just in the feet or where was it? Most
1: of his symptoms were in the feet, but he did have some hand symptoms as well. Fortunately, they were fairly distal and did not extend too much proximally, but certainly there are people in whom that occurs as well. Any pain or motor issues? He did not have motor issues, but he did occasionally have the sort of stabbing type pain that some of these patients with neuropathy can develop. My philosophy about alternative medicines is that until we're curing multiple myeloma in a large fraction of patients, we should really try to investigate any potential avenue that could be of benefit to folks, whether that be because of activity against the disease or whether that be because of activity to help in a supportive care environment. So I'll mention something else, which is curcumin. And curcumin, which many people know as the yellow spice in turmeric or curry— is something that we at MD Anderson have had an interest in for a while. And we did a study of curcumin as a single agent in patients with progressing myeloma. And although I think the overall conclusion was that we did not see any responses, there were patients who had stable disease. And in correlative studies, we found significant modulations in some of the cytokines that we think are mediators of problems like neuropathy. So we're about to open a study in probably the next year or so looking at the use of Revlimid maintenance therapy, either alone or with curcumin, where the curcumin is an adjunct to try to reduce the side effects of the lenalidomide. And although that's not a topic for today's session, You do know that lenalidomide has had some nice benefits now shown in the maintenance setting, both in non-transplant patients. There was a study, again, from Italy, which compared melphalan, prednisone, and lenalidomide, followed by lenalidomide maintenance, which showed that that was certainly better than melphalan and prednisone, and also better than melphalan, prednisone, and lenalidomide, Plus, there was a U.S. intergroup study looking at the use of lenalidomide post-transplant as a maintenance therapy. And shortly after ASH, there was an announcement that the study had been halted because there was a positive result showing a more than 50% improvement in time to progression of the group that got lenalidomide maintenance therapy after transplant compared to placebo, So I think there's going to be increasing use of lenalidomide in the maintenance setting and it therefore makes sense to try drugs like curcumin that may have a benefit in reducing some of the side effects.
0: As long as you brought that up, what's the duration of maintenance lenalidomide that people have been on up to this point? And how do people do on maintenance? So what are some of the issues that come up in terms of trying to keep them on therapy? One
1: of the benefits of lenalidomide as a single agent, as opposed to in combination with dexamethasone or anthracyclines, is the fact, alluding to our previous discussion on thromboembolic complications, that you probably do not need to prophylax those patients because either thalidomide alone or lenalidomide alone don't seem to dramatically increase the risk of those complications. So the major things that we see in people who are on maintenance therapy with lenalidomide, and usually the intergroup trial that I described, the doses were between 5 and 15 milligrams. The starting dose was 10 milligrams. That could be escalated to 15 if patients tolerated 10 well. And if there were problems, that could be de-escalated down to about 5 milligrams, The major problems that you do run into are problems with cytopenias. I think there is some cumulative toxicity from a marrow reserve perspective. And from what I recall, remember that these data were not presented in detail at ASH. But from what I recall, the major side effects in prolonged lenalidomide therapy were these cytopenias.
0: You know, it's interesting. I was talking to your colleague Susan O'Brien the other day in terms of the issue of adherence. You know, here in CML, for example, we have a curative or extremely effective therapy, and yet. There are some data that suggests that maybe there's a not inconsequential amount of lack of adherence in breast cancer with long-term hormonal therapy. It's been reported. Any sense about the oral agents in myeloma, specifically the IMIDs, or more specifically lenalidomide, in terms of whether people actually are able to take the medicine? It seems that as we move forward in advancing myeloma therapy, Our
1: drugs are becoming more effective, but also the regimens seem to become more intensive, and it therefore requires more of a commitment on the part of the patient and their family to stick to the prescribed program. I don't have any data about the adherence of patients to the regimen, but I think your point is excellent because this is something that we need to monitor moving forward. One of the few benefits of lenalidomide long-term toxicity being cytopenias is that if patients come in and require downward dose adjustments, the chances are that they're taking their medication appropriately, whereas if they do not require any dose adjustments ever, then either they have a very robust bone marrow, which is certainly a possibility, or they may perhaps not be taking their medication appropriately.
0: Let's return to this critical question of neuropathy and myeloma, particularly as it relates to bortezomib. When you have a patient who doesn't have any prior neuropathy or any risk factors for neuropathy, who's about to begin a bortezomib combination, who asks you, what's the chance I'm going to have a problem with neuropathy? What do you say?
1: Well, from the studies that have been done, we know that about one out of 10 or so of patients will have a neuropathy that reaches grade 3 or grade 4, which is moderate to severe, with the twice-a-week schedule. If the drug is used in combination, that rate goes down substantially. And also, if the drug is used once per week, that number goes down substantially. The problem is that it isn't always easy. In fact, it's not possible to predict which patients will have problems with neuropathy versus those who don't. So the most important interventions one can make are number one, to be very cognizant of what level of neuropathic symptoms the patient has, if any, at baseline, and then to be very vigilant and ask the same questions moving forward, because the best way to avoid problems with neuropathy becoming significant are to catch them early and make dose adjustments very aggressively.
0: When you have a patient who's younger, 50s, early 60s, who's going to be a transplant candidate, in general, what's your induction systemic therapy regimen going to be nowadays outside of a protocol?
1: Well, I think that there are a number of combinations that are very good. If one uses phase 3 trials to guide your approach, probably the three best ones would be either lenalidomide with low-dose dexamethasone or bortezomib with dexamethasone or the three-drug combination of bortezomib, thalidomide, and dexamethasone. And also, although we don't have yet phase 3 data supporting it, Probably the combination of bortezomib with lenalidomide and dexamethasone is probably the most active of those. And that's probably the one that we use at Anderson most frequently. And there are trials at a number of centers looking at building
0: onto that with additional drugs. One of the things that's a little confusing to me is I hear some people like Paul Richardson, who's been very involved with that regimen, saying, the toxicity is no greater than when you use RD or I guess it would be BD. And other people who say, well, when you use three drugs, of course you're going to get more toxicity than with two. What's your take on that?
1: Well, I think ultimately that question will be answered by the two phase three studies that are currently ongoing in the U.S. The Southwest Oncology Group is doing lenalidomide dex versus the VRD combination, and the ECOG folks are doing bortezomib dex, versus the VRD combination. My feeling is that any time you compare three drugs with two drugs, unless the third drug that you've added is a monoclonal antibody where the tolerability profile is often, not always, but often much better, I do think that in general, three drugs, especially small molecules, are going to be a little bit more toxic than two drugs. Now, the question is not whether they're more toxic, but whether the benefit that you get from that is going to be worth the toxicity. And again, that we won't know without the phase three trials. But I think that when Paul shows his data with VRD showing a 100% virtually response rate with a high proportion of patients having at least a very good partial response,
0: That's a tough thing to argue against, even in the absence of phase three data so far.